Hey there, welcome to the Cause and Effect podcast where we talk about the human stories and lives of entrepreneurs and change makers here in Oregon. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my friend Jelani Memory, who is a husband, father, and co-founder of A Kid's Book About, as well as a software company called Circle. So welcome to the show, Jelani. Glad to be here. By the way, I got your bio, like that was the most succinct bio from Twitter, and I was just like, you know, that is in priority order, isn't it? Like, yeah. husband, father, and then entrepreneur, basically. Absolutely. And actually, it's funny because I'll, I'll get asked, you know, how do you do it all, Jelani? And I just say I keep everything in its own order. So it's always my wife first. It's my kid second. And third is work. Whenever work comes first, you always get sort of a little messed up. So yeah. I try and keep it in that order. No, that's awesome. So as fate would have it, uh, our uh, one of my best friends, Lou Raja, who uh, was just on the on the show last week, uh, he was in here and you got to meet him in person. Um, but a couple weeks ago when I told him that you and I were going to do this podcast interview and he, it was like, you're a rock star. He's like, my, my <laughs> wife is a teacher at an elementary school and, and one of her third grade students, like her, uh, this student's life was changed after the class was reading, uh, the, a kid's book about feminism um, because she was able to, it like gave permission for this third grader to go to, uh, Stacy Raja, the teacher and kind of open the door to talking and, and really, um, kind of, uh, owning her identity as a trans, uh, person. And, um, and that in a way can like save, save your life because I think it's something like 51% of, uh, uh, trans folks at some point were uh, have reported as suicidal and things like that. It's just like a ton of stress and pressure that society puts on the whole situation. So I, my question to you is like, have you gotten, you know, testimonials like that of just like, Oh my gosh, mm. like I'm like, I want all of the books. Cause I think right now there's 12 or 16, 12, 12. Um, but yeah, tell me about like, you know, some of the reception that you've gotten. Yeah, it's been, it's been so phenomenal. And I'll, I'll say, you know, that story from Lou is, is emblematic of the stories that we hear actually really frequently, which is some kid now had permission to talk about a thing that was not supposed to be talked about. That was not okay. That was not cool. That was not, um, it, it was not an open subject and our books enter in whether that's a classroom or a home and they create permission. They unlock the opportunity. They sort of let the, the, the gas out of the room and sort of create oxygen for that conversation. And, and like, I'm literally like, I got this email from uh, Emma McElroy who wrote a kid's book about feminism. And, um, I'm literally, I'm just like sitting there crying. She's like, I just wanted you to see this email, you know? And it's, it was another remarkable story where some kid's life changed, like something dramatic happened. And, and it was all because of this little kid's book that genuinely doesn't have new information in it. It's just put forth and propositioned in such a way so as to go, hey, we're just going to shoot straight with you and matter of fact and be honest and, and, and talk up to you and not down to you and tell you what's real. And that for kids, I think, is is therapeutic. It's life giving. It's life changing. So I realized that we just jumped right in and that, that was on me. Um, tell us how you started, because and I'm sure as entrepreneurs, we're asked this all the time, but just give the audience a sense of what is a kid's book about really all about how you began. Yeah. And, um, and I know there's a, a vision there that is, it's kind of like the business model is kind of like, um, you know, the, for dummies type, you know, that, that brand of book of like X subject. Sure, about sure. dummies. Um, but how did you begin it? And it's, it seems like it's been this organic story that it makes like this, the world was actually legitimately missing this. Yeah. And now it's opened the topic up for, 
a lot of entrepreneurs want to now partner with you yeah, on yeah, yeah. their topic that they're passionate yeah. about. So just, yeah. yeah, talk to us about that. Yeah, well, I'll, 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 I'll start on a different, slightly different note because I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback on the last thing that you said, which is, you know, in the entrepreneurship world, it's all about finding what your unfair advantage is. Um, and starting that first company of mine, Circle, uh, I didn't realize how many unfair advantages I had, but I had a ton of them from coming from a storytelling background, being a creative, being a bit of a polymath. And so I wove those things into sort of creating what the product would do and why it would do it. And then how we told those stories when it came to this business and I'll get into how we started it. Um, I immediately understood from day one when I decided to start this business that I might be the only person on planet earth to actually do this. And that's not bragging. It's just the confluence of all of the things in my life amounted to me being sort of the reason why this sort of could exist now and maybe the reason why it didn't exist before. So as I go through this, I'll explain sort of what some of those things are. So it, it never started as a business. It wasn't supposed to be a business. It was supposed to be one book, a kid's book about racism. Um, I got remarried three and a half years ago to a wonderful woman named Brandy. Um, and she came with four kids in tow, um, all from, I think at that time, uh, seven to 12. Uh, and I love being a dad, being a dad's like my superpower. I had one kid at the time, a little Ella. And so I brought on four more kids. So leveled up to five. And then since Brandy and I have had another kiddo, who's one and a half, um, whose scratches are literally like on my face, you know, like he's, he's an animal. He's wonderful. Solomon. Uh, Um, and, uh, having a home where, you know, I'm a person of color. My wife is white. My four step kids are very white. Uh, I've now got two little Brown kids too. And race, racism, culture, color, were all going to be topics that we were going to talk about as a family. And, and I always wanted it to feel open and comfortable. And I also didn't want my kids going out into the world and being that kid who said that thing or did that thing. Um, and I knew that my, my little girl, Ella, was going to go out into the world as a person of color and have some experiences that were going to be fundamentally different from my other kids who are white. And so I wanted them to understand each other and to feel like they could talk about it. And, and for my wife and I to talk about it, you know, and that's a whole nother like really cool sort of experience of her learning about my life growing up and, you know, getting woke, if you will. (laughs) Um, So I wrote a kid's book about it. You know, I was in the middle of raising series B for circle. Um, You know, we were trying to raise What what is circle real quick? So circle uh, is, you know, parental controls for the modern age, uh, one device to manage all your devices, no matter what kind, just connect it to your network and it sees everything. And mom and dad can pause the internet, can set time limits, can make bedtimes. Uh, We were able to launch that in partnership with the Walt Disney Company and found a lot of success. It was a lot of fun. I was chief product officer there and co-founder and it was my PhD in learning how to how to do companies, if you will. So I'm in the middle of building that it's year six. Um, and I want a personal project outside of work that I just sort of own and control. And it ends up being this kid's book and, and true sort of Jelani fashion. I take a personal project and turn it up to 11. Cause that's the only thing I know how to do is like try and productize something, but it was just like a product just for my six kids. So I write it. I design it and I print it on blurb.com and I anxiously await the four weeks that it's going to take to get in the mail. And it arrives October, 2018. And I look at it and I go, this is cool. And I let my kids read it. They think it's cool. And I have a sigh of relief that now I, I can go back to work, right. And, and live my life like normal. And this little fun personal project is done with. Now, little did I know that I would make the mistake or maybe the sort of fortuitous moment of showing it to anybody else outside my home, but I start showing it to friends because I'm, I'm proud of it. I think it's cool still with no ambition to do anything with it. And they all have the same response. This is so cool. Can I buy a copy? My answer every time was no, (laughs) I would have to print another one. It's going to take four weeks to get here. You know, like that's more work than I'm, I'm willing to put up with. Um, and then they were like, you should make more, you, you could make more. And then all of a sudden people would 
that unlock happened, that permission happened where all of a sudden, not just people who were close friends who'd never talked about racism with me were now talking about it with me openly. It was like, whoa, this is weird. But people were talking about other stuff, really deep, tough stuff. Like I've suffered from anxiety my whole life or depression or, you know, my mom, she's, you know, she's going to die of cancer. I was like, whoa, this is, this got really heavy. And I, I consider myself a very straightforward, like deep person where I go deep with people, but I found, and you have, uh, you have a degree in philosophy, well, like Bible studies and so, things like that. So people are probably like almost treat you like a pastor kind of sure, like, sure, fair you know, enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, to some degree, like, that's what I love about this podcast. You know, we just talked about this before. It's not like a ton of listeners, but people, when you open the door, when you give permission, the people to share, um, some big things in their life they'll share if they're in a safe place and i feel like that's what your book does it like creates a safe place for that yeah that's a really good way to put it creates a safe place for it so i'm now having these annoying conversations with my friends all the time and i'm i'm frustrated slightly because i don't get it i don't i think my book's cool but it's not that cool for sure and and also i don't need another business to work on right i'm already I'm living the dream. We're like raising a huge round of funding and I get to sort of help lead the product team. And, and it's starting to now nag me in the morning when I wake up and when I go to bed, sort of like the, what could be, you know, like, Oh, well, gosh, I don't want to do another business and I don't need to. And all my friends are wrong. But if I did like, Oh yeah, I could, I could do a book, you know, that was on, mental health or on autism or on fear or on loneliness or on being abused or on cancer or on sexuality or on all the things that I know I have to talk about with my kids, but are impossible to bring up out of the blue. Right. Yeah. And once I'd let my mind wander far enough, it was just this unstoppable force sort of all the, all the right buttons were being pressed internally for me to go, this should exist in the world. And maybe I don't do it now. Maybe I wait till after the circle things done and I get to it and I build it, but it's gotta be done. And, you know, I just felt, I felt all at once, like I was the person to do it that it needed to be now and that also I was ready for my next thing. And how you know, long did that take? And not very long. So October I get the book and January I'm negotiating my exit out of circle. So not very long. Right. Um, my wife knows I'm famous for making really big decisions really fast. Um, and I, I think I just, I have a lot of conviction and I had so much conviction about this because I understood that a kid's book about you could fill in anything at the bottom if it was important, if it was challenging, if it mattered, if it seemed significant, and that there was an endless amount of stories that you could tell there. And what was astounding to me was is that these kinds of books, they didn't exist. Not in this way. And look, there are plenty of books that deal with hard issues like sexuality or mental health or racism or prejudice. Um, The problem is, is that they're packaged in such a way so as to not be as matter of fact or um, as straightforward with kids as I think we need to be very often. Um, I think we infantilize kids. We treat them younger than we ought to, um, mostly out of our fear about even just talking with them about uncomfortable things because we get really uncomfortable even though they're totally fine with it. Um, and so this is the part where I, you know, this unfair advantage, right? Why am I the person to do this? And I realized one, I'm a person of color. So already 2% of the people in the publishing industry are people of color, right? So boom. Okay. So that already makes me like really greatly qualified to sort of pursue into this uncomfortable topic zone. I'm not from the publishing world. That's another sort of great check mark because publishing has exists for hundreds of years and it hasn't really changed that much. Three, branding, marketing, go to market. Those are all my sort of skill set coming out of circle. And I realized I could apply them to this business that is publishing that essentially doesn't entirely exist, at least not in sort of a modern way. It's all sort of old and traditional. Um, 
Can I give you a four? Sure. You use the word infantilize. That is amazing. I've never even heard that word. Like, <laughs> you, <laughs> you clearly must be a writer because like that is <laughs> infantilize. Like I'm going to use that seven times in this podcast. <laughs> All right. So it's funny because, uh, you know, I'll take you back to my childhood. I didn't read as a kid. I collected comic books. I loved comic books, but I would only look at the pictures. Um, grew up without a dad. Dad left when I was four. Mom worked nights and somehow raised all of us kids, us four kids, and somehow we did all the sports. But I was sort of left to myself to parent myself in a lot of ways. So that, that led to me literally like never having read a, a book cover to cover until my junior year of high school. I just didn't know there were interesting things inside of those things, you know? Uh, but by my senior year, I fall in love with reading. But the issue is, is I'm, I'm a slow reader because I hadn't practiced up to that point. So even still to this day, I read at the pace that I talk at, which you can imagine is, is, you know, takes me a while to make it through a book. Um, so it's even uncanny that I sort of love books in the way that I do now. Um, but I didn't grow up reading kids books because I wasn't reading at all. Right. Um, I sort of lost the thread of why I was getting down. Oh, so my childhood. Not having a dad, you know, I saw him maybe a dozen times through my whole entire childhood. I saw him more in the newspaper than I saw him in person. I'm not kidding. Um, For good things or not good things? Good things. He was a famous jazz musician. Um, I, I worshipped my dad. I thought he was the coolest guy on planet Earth. I just didn't know him. Um, you know, by the time you become an adult, you sort of, you start to feel the resentment and the hurt and the pain. You start to work through that. And that, and that was a, a big part of my journey in my twenties and you know early thirties. But, um, that for me, as I became a father was, it was sort of fatherhood, you know, ex nihilo it was, you know, I got to invent what fatherhood was supposed to look like because I never played catch with my dad in the front yard you know, we never went to trips to do things. I mean, uh, he never saw me play soccer, never saw, saw me shoot a single three pointer, never seen me play guitar. You know, uh, the, the list goes on. Right. So when it came to me being a dad, everything was from like truly first principles. I had to sort of decide what's the right thing to do in this situation because I have nothing to draw on. Yeah, because I find with my wife and I, especially when we first started parenting, I find, I don't know if it's a universal truth, but you often parent as you have been parented oh, too. Yeah. Oh yeah. So for you to have, at least on the male figure side of it, sure. to create that from nothing is tricky. It's very tricky. And, and it, it's sort of the exact kind of problem that I like to solve, which I think makes me a great entrepreneur is, uh, it's a tough problem, but it's solvable if you just sort of put your mind to it and think about it and sort of exert yourself on it. Um, so I learned fatherhood as a father while not drawing on sort of that experience from my own father because my own father was gone and that wasn't ever an option for me to just be gone, right? Or to disengage or to be dispassionate about sort of my children. Um, and so in that way, I, I sort of built a playbook if you will, not to belabor the entrepreneurship metaphor, but, um, that ended up being me being as honest and direct and straightforward with my kids as I could be at every age. And that if they were old enough to ask about it, they were old enough to hear the answer. And there was never going to be, I'll tell you when you're older, you wouldn't understand. Um, you know, that's too, that's inappropriate for you to hear. Um, it was always, let me see if I can find a way to explain it to you. Right. And not necessarily bring it down, but to really find the substance of it, the sort of the core essence of it. And back to this point about sort of what gives me the right to make these books, which actually I've been asked by other like agents and publishers, like <laughs> it's the, what, what the hell gives you the right to do this? Right? <laughs> you don't have a certificate or a, a degree in this particular. Yeah. Um, as I realized I was, I was sort of uniquely qualified as I think a seasoned entrepreneur, as a father of six, 
as a kid who grew up with no dad, who learned fatherhood by just being as honest as possible with his own kids. Um, and, and having zero fear about failing at something that really mattered. And maybe that's the last bit is I just thought this should exist in the world and it never crossed my mind. What if this doesn't work? Because it was, it wasn't even, that's not an option. It was always an option. Still is an option, right? It's more so going, why not fail trying and then pick myself back up and, you know, get at it again. As long as I'm putting food on the table and, you know, my kids can go to school and they get shoes on their feet. You know, everybody will be okay. Everything will be fine. And, you know, if that gets put in jeopardy, then, then we need to reconfigure some things. But otherwise, you know, why not chase it? Yeah. Okay. So I am going to get to the next part of your business model, but do it where <clears throat> you're going to be in the driver's seat instead of me. And I don't edit this podcast much. So I'm going to have us pick a really un have you pick a really uncomfortable topic and from what I understand you partner a I have no motivation actually being an author in one of your books because, <laughs> this, because that person would be typically an expert in this field it wouldn't be a person who was is feels very uncomfortable on a particular topic you're correct yeah so but I just I want to add to the entertainment value of the podcast of you do like a four hour whiteboarding session with Emma McElroy, for example, on feminism. And you come, you brainstorm like core themes to that person's true story and then have it come through in a kid's book about feminism. Yeah. Yeah. We call it the uh, workshop method. Uh, so you now have the mic and you can, I know you have like a hundred topics that you want to publish and you're going to try and publish like 30 a year or something like yeah. that. Um, but I did share one that I was uncomfortable with before this, but you have your bevy and, and you know, so you, you take it away. Like ha walk us through like how you might, um, do a brand, uh, a whiteboarding session and just, uh, what might make me feel comfortable and like, let's dig into that. Sure. Well, so I'll, I'll flip it on you a little bit. So this is, you know, Christmas time of 2018 and I'm, I'm just the seed of what this should be. And I've finally decided I can't do this alone. I can't write all the books. I don't have all the experiences. So I need to find other people with these, these stories to tell. And then I start to sort of pull in this thread to go, Oh my God, there are all these stories to tell and they're not being told because of the issues around diversity in the publishing industry and who gets to make a book. And the reality is you either have to have a hundred thousand Twitter followers, uh, or you need to have published a book before. And all of a sudden that, that, that gets really narrow, right? Um, sort of who gets to tell their story. And if you can guess who gets left out of that are people of color are women are people who are poor are people who've had sort of, you know, uh, sort of low socioeconomic sort of, uh, you know, broad status. So I thought I can democratize all of that. And that's not like a charity give back thing. That's like a, that's an asset to who we are as a business. Mm -hmm. And for me, that, that insight into how this was going to work was realizing everybody has a story to tell. And even further than that, everybody has a kid's book inside them of something that they have a deep personal experience with, of something that they know maybe more than anybody else around them, that if you asked all their friends, they would say, oh, well, you should talk to so-and-so about that. They, they know a lot about that because, 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 right? If you want to talk to me about not growing up with a dad, I'm your guy because I, it, I spent my whole life doing it, right? Now, the problem is if you grew up with a dad, you're going to suck at talking about that, right? It's true. It's true. Um, which means putting you in the driver's seat of that book would be a terrible idea. Right. Um, and so part of my, my hope and my gift and my pursuit is to find what's that one kid's book that every single person is made to write. Uh, and in that way... I, I know mine. You know yours? <laughs> so... Yeah. In that way, it's like, I don't want to know the thing you're uncomfortable about. I want to know the thing you're most comfortable about, you're so comfortable about, that you wake up thinking about sharing it. That if you were asked to give a TED Talk with five minutes notice, it's the first story you'd give, right? And that's the authors that we find. What's really interesting is, is I think 
anything that's outside of that zone makes every adult uncomfortable, especially when it comes to kids. Uh, like every adult, like uh, the impeachment, right? Politics, sex, drugs, sexuality, right? Uh, mental health, uh, suicide, you name it, right? We just go down the rabbit hole. Like these are things we don't want to talk about as adults or we want to do it in the most sort of somber way, you know, where it's, it's got all the rules are laid out and then God forbid somebody get invited who, who doesn't agree or is on the same page. Cause it's like, how could that even work? You know, how do we even have that conversation? You throw a kid into the mix and now they're asking like really on the nose, like you can't ask those questions kind of questions. And then it's like, shut it down. Right. Like pull the sort of the power cord out and like, let's walk away because we can't have this conversation. Like we're creating books that are stepping like, directly in the center like the epicenter of that space and I think the beauty is is that the book acts as a vehicle of comfort for the grown-up to go this is my way in to start this because I think it's important and for the kid they go finally finally somebody is somebody's treating taking me. the shields off and yeah. giving me a real answer exactly yeah. and then kids equipped with the real words about a thing equipped with a general understanding and not a lecture down from a grown up. Now I was going, Oh, well, huh? This thing happened in my classroom. Is this like that? No fear in that question. No anxiety. No, you know, this and that they're just, they're curious. Right. And then for a kid, so like we are doing a book on shame. We did a book on body image for a kid who's dealing with those issues really acutely. The book acts as a permission giver to go this scary, uncomfortable, sort of dark, hidden thing. Now there's permission that it's normal, that it's okay, that you're not the only one. And that, if our books do anything, it's just sort of the you're not the only one, um, is powerful for a kid because they sort of go, ah, right, they can finally breathe. And then a parent goes, I had no idea. I had no idea all these things were happening inside of you, but thank God that I do now because we can talk about it. And that's all the thing. The only thing the grown up ever wanted was just that they could talk about it. And the kid wanted to talk about it, but they didn't have the words to, they didn't know how they didn't sort of know what was at stake. And sort of that coupled with the parents uncomfortability, it creates a situation where none of this stuff ever gets talked about at all. This is my really long preamble. Mm. Oh, there's something coming here. Okay. Um, you're going to catch me by surprise, you know, into, I'll, I'll put a little bit of a twist on how we make our books and I'll, I'll tell it from my, my personal perspective. I, I fundamentally believed that I was not the person to write the kid's book about racism. This is part of why I titled it a kid's book about racism. It felt like it was like, who am I? I'm just, I'm just some dude. And even then, my experience is about sort of being, you know, not black enough for the black kids and too sort of too white for the white kids. It's like this strange sort of both sides of the track existence um, that's its own unique form of sort of pernicious prejudice and racism. And I thought, you know, it'd be cool to get ta Coates, you know, on the line and write this book. But it's just me. And what can I do? All I can do is tell my story and try and extrapolate some bigger principles out of it. And, and that's what I did. And I was very nervous about even including the book in the collection in the first place because I just, I didn't feel like the person. And one of the unique things that's happened as we've acquired more authors is I hear that exact same sentiment. There's a moment where I'm finishing acquiring the author, right? We're, we're like just finishing our conversation. There's that sort of high elation from the author that they're going to get to make a book with us. And they sort of stop me and go, are you sure I'm the right person for this? You like, surely there's gotta be some doctor somewhere or some professional or some educator. Imposter syndrome creeps in for sure. Yeah. And I go, thank you for saying that. Cause you saying that means you're exactly the right person to write this. Cause there's that humility that has to make it in to go. I'm just putting my story out into there, into the world. And hopefully it's useful for somebody, but it's not the only thing there is to say about this. Do you know what I mean? So that's where I would throw my hat to you and go, what's one of those things that 
you maybe know most that you have a deep expertise in, but also something that makes you feel deeply uncomfortable. Like it's not the thing you bring up at dinner parties that, you know, everybody goes, Oh, Ryan, you're so amazing. You're so awesome. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, there's 125 people at your company. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's so cool. Where it's the thing where it's like, Oh, Oh, that's what we're talking about now. Okay. Um, when, when can I leave this conversation? Right. And I feel like we all have a few of those that are maybe not as sort of friendly to bring up and yet do something incredible in our relationships with people. I, so that is a twist that I, um, when I thought of, there are some topics that are kind of aspirational that aren't quite, uh, my own opinion as hard to talk about as others. Like, I think there's a whole, category you have around you know whether it's belonging or god or inspiration or things like that where it's not like suicide and sure. you know uh really hard things to talk about yeah so the easier thing for me to talk about would be like building community because i you know i love doing that and it comes naturally but that's easy that's not hard i think i do really like awkward conversations and I'm pretty good at those, but if I, I most connect with, um, other entrepreneurs, which is part, part of the podcast and things like that. And I have started off, you know, dinner conversations with 20 entrepreneurs around, around, Hey, it's, it's kind of boring to talk about, you know, business all the time. You know, let's have this conversation have an open framework to talking about our personal connection to spirituality or what happens after death or things like that. So I, I'm not, you did have a twist on it and you are driving. And so I haven't had a lot of time to like marinate on it, but it would be that thought process. And I don't know if you have the topic before you do the whiteboard session and then you dig in, or if you start in one place, but then at the end of the four hours, you're like, tweak it and you're like actually the topic's a little bit different i don't know yeah Put it back yeah. on you uh i can tell you you know our process with authors it's funny because lou yeah. who was on your last yeah. episode asked me you know well what's your pro? what's the algorithm right and i said i'm the algorithm mm -hmm. i just i just decide and there's that's me as first and foremost an artist and a creative trying to synthesize across the whole collection and thinking about my kids almost first and foremost of going, what should exist in the world for them? Trying to pull all these disparate data points and how the market might respond and how we can market this and talk about it and what photos we'll take. And, and then also that person and sort of going, are they the avatar for this topic? And, and, and does it feel weighty and does it feel like it matters? Um, and we always pick a word, a thing, a topic before we walk in the room so that there's that sort of guiding North star to go, here's what we're talking about. Here's, here's why we're in the room together. Um, one of the books that we're coming out with next is called a kid's book about shame. Um, I sought out the author. She was not looking to write a book with us, but I said, I want you to do a book with us. I just don't know what that book is yet. Um, and so we sat down for an hour and I said, you're going to write a kid's book about shame with us. She goes, really? I said, really? Uh, because it, it was just, it was oozing out of everything that she said, that it was clearly something that was deeply important to her, that she's also worked through and worked out. And and I, I had all the confidence in the world that we were going to make one of the most important books that it could exist for a kid on that topic. And so walking into the room together, that whiteboard session we, we walk through how we think about story. We walk through sort of uh, the approach to take with kids. Um, we walk through our own personal stories. So even us as the team members in the room from the company, we share our personal stories, which gives permission then for the author to go, well, here's my story. And then we take bits and pieces out of that. And then we literally open up a Google Doc and we write the book together. Everybody has permissions to put words in there. The author always has sort of the ripcord to go, I don't want that to go in there. That doesn't make sense. Or I'd say it like this. And we always walk out of the room having read through it and going, this is important. This matters. This is going to change some kid's life. This is really cool. I can't believe we just wrote a book. It's the same every time. We've done it 20 times. It's the same every time, which is, I can't believe we just made a book together. 
does that like I would imagine the emotional energy of that is similar to a retreat or something where you're just like that was powerful but like drain like that absorbed oh, a lot yeah. of my energy because I am literally like visualizing how this is gonna impact a kid's life like in the moment yeah yeah and and hoping that it, it it felt like it's the right thing. You, it's personal. You know? yeah. And, you know, there's always tears. Uh, when we finish, uh, our authors usually describe it as being like therapy. Um, and I think it is therapeutic. And I am privileged to get to participate and lead every single workshop that we do. Um, and, you know, it's funny. Yes, they're drained. And I'm certainly drained. But there's the flip side of that, which is to go, we did a thing that usually takes people months to do we did it in an afternoon and it's good. Like it's not just good. It might not even exist in this way if we tried it in a traditional way. And in that way it's, it's invigorating. Like Kevin Carroll, when he did his book, he's done three books. One of them is a bestseller. He said, when we finished, he goes, this is the most fun I've ever had making a book. He goes, you guys don't understand how cool this is. He was our first workshop. He goes, this changes everything. He goes, this is like this as a published author, everybody should go through this experience because it's so remarkable, which is a huge compliment because I didn't know what we had on our hands. It was just the the only way to make a book that made sense to me that didn't require months and months and months was to have everybody in the room together. So, so let's let's go. I know you told a bit of your story through the lens of a kid's book about and growing up without a dad being around much, but you grew up here in Portland. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about you were really into sport. Like what, what were you into as a kid? And let's ground ourselves in you just really quick. We don't have to dive too deep if you don't want to. No, no, no. We go, uh, uh, look, I'm an open book. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> born and raised here in Portland, Oregon. Apparently the, the only person who, who's actually born here, you know, <laughs> out of all the people who live here now. Uh, and, uh, you know, mom and dad, and me and my my three siblings, we lived in, in North Portland and mom and dad were on drugs. Mom decides I'm not going to do drugs anymore. She takes us and moves us over to the southwest side of town and says, hey, dad, you can come when you could clean. Never gets clean. Um, and so she raises us all by herself, um, working nights as a as a NICU nurse, um, like busting her ass uh, to put food on the table and make sure I had a Sega Genesis and cool sneakers and um, you know, like, and as a kid, you don't, you're not thinking about all those things and how hard that is, you know, or like the sleep deprivation, you know? Um, and, uh, and, you know, she'd get sleep during the day when she could. And, uh, our, as a siblings, our lives were sports for the most part. So I played, you know, soccer, basketball and track in high school. And that was, a, Did you go to Wilson. Or? So I went to Wilson, Wilson high school. Yeah. Um, but that was my sort of outward life in a lot of ways. My my inward life was I was an artist. I drawing was my skill set, was my gifting, was my passion. So that's where the comic books come in, which is, you know, every kid who grew up in the eighties and early nineties was into the X Men and comic books. So, you know, I still have all my comic books and comic book cards and I had no interest in the stories. I was just I was interacting with the art. Um, which is somewhat ironic that y these kids' books a kid's book about has zero pictures. Yeah. 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 <laughs> which, which is funny. I, I always know I've made something really interesting when it splits people and some people go, what? Or like, they're like, that's so dumb. Or they go, that's brilliant. It's incredible. It's the only thing you could do. It's, it's the only thing that makes sense. Like, okay, good. We've, we've made something right. Um, it's not boring at least. Um, but, you know, I spent all my time either drawing or kicking a soccer ball for the most part. Um, I get to, you know, middle school and all of a sudden being cool is super important. And so I spend most of my time trying to be cool. Uh, I've got all the friends I can ask for. You know, again, we're just like, you know, wreaking havoc and throwing pumpkins on Halloween. Like I just imagine, you know, a seventh grader with zero supervision um, who's kind of smart, but no rules, you know, you just imagine where that might go. Right. Um, I, I get to high school and 
And now there's like, there's a clear pecking order. And I realize I'm kind of, I'm like, I'm kind of towards the top of it. This is interesting. Like, and I'm sort of dispassionately sort of looking at it. I play three varsity sports by the time I'm a sophomore. And by the time I'm a junior, I am, I realize I am clinically depressed. And again, this is all, I'm like, I'm, I'm raising myself. So I'm sort of, I reach that point and I sort of self-diagnose myself. Yeah, and you're observing this, like that usually takes till you're 40 <laughs> to observe your emotion. Like that's really hard to do to like step outside of your body and like look at your emotions like that. That's, that's really mature. I, I think so. I hope so. I, for me, it was, it was almost an act of desperation because I thought this can't possibly keep going on like this. Cause I was smart enough to know from an accomplishment perspective, I had everything I wanted. Um, from a status perspective, I was at the top of the food chain. I was, I, by the time I was in my junior year, I was easily one of the most popular kids in school, if not the most popular kid in school. And also I didn't totally care that much about it, which also made it sort of like higher from a status point. Um, and, and I hated my life. I genuinely, I was sad. I was depressed. I wasn't suicidal, but I, I sort of understood something was fundamentally wrong. And I had continued to look inwardly for that answer of what's the meaning of life? What's my purpose? What matters? What's going to fulfill me and make me happy? And I'd been chasing all that stuff. And I thought, this isn't working. Like I've got it. And it's not working. So what's the answer? And I I made literally a conscious choice to go. I need to find something outside of me. That's the answer. And so I go to Annie Bloom's bookstore, which is in Multnomah Village, and I buy four books. I buy one that's a world religions book. I buy one that's literally like ancient scriptures from the six major world religions. And remember, I'm not like a book guy either. Right. Yeah, these are going right? to take a while to read. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, was, I, was, I was motivated because I was like, there's an answer out there. And I, maybe it's in one of these like crazy, like those buildings where people go into and they do the, I don't know. Like who knows? Library. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> library. <laughs> um, and I ended up having this remarkable experience at uh, a thing called young life. So it's just, you know, youth organization nationwide. Um, and they have these things called clubs. Every, my high school just started one that year. And, and I show up and I have fun for maybe the first time and the only time I can remember for years. And that's not to say none of the basketball games were fun or none of the soccer games were fun or I wasn't joshing around with my friends and having fun, but I had joy for the very first time. And so I, I, I go and I grab the leader afterwards and I was like, I want to learn more about this stuff. Teach me more about this stuff. And I think I took him back a little bit. And that was also for me, I'm, I'm an introvert. By nature, I I recharge when I'm alone, and being up in front of people is, you know, crawl out of my skin. Um, and being in large groups of people or parties, you know, forget about it. Um, but uh, so he was he was patient to sort of help teach me sort of what he knew, which was the Bible. And I spent you know six months pouring through it and just like destroying every argument that he had. Like, cause I was a, I was a, just a smart ass, like, uh, probably cynical, right. And cynical, um, but also hungry. Right. And the one thing I couldn't deny was the brotherhood that I was getting from this, you know, he must've been 24, 25 at the time. Um, he treated me with more respect and more regard than any other adult had in my entire life. And so I thought there, there's clearly something to that at the very least. Um, and, you know, and again, like, look, I, I'm just unfolding my whole life story. So I know this isn't like specifically a spiritual podcast. And no, no, but it, <laughs> we, we go there. Yeah, it's full but permission. For me, the story and the life of Jesus was so profound that it was finally an answer that was outside of myself that made sense to me that I could lock on to. And I think there's something profound about the idea of 
thinking about God and, uh, you know, this out there way, I, I, I wanted, I wanted him to have a name. I wanted him to have something I could grab onto. And, and cause the God, the father was super amorphous, like energy ball uh, in the just sky. Out there, and, yeah, you know, yeah. like, is he going to lightning bolt me? I don't know. Um, you know, what's the deal with this Trinity thing? And anyways, uh, but Jesus, he, I could fixate on him. So I decided to become a Christian that summer and my whole life just changes. Like truly in a dramatic instance it's not that i'm happy all the time but i think i was finally able to grieve i was able to grieve my dad not being there i was able to grieve you know like my mom and her always working and not being able to be sort of pay attention to us kids and rightfully so there's all the reasons right um and a whole number of other things that had happened in my childhood and i was able to sort of reckon with my own self and my own decisions and sort of i don't know be present for the very first time in my life and it did a really unique thing. I didn't seem unique at the time. It just seemed like it made sense at the time. I I wrote a letter that was basically like, here was my life before and here's my life now and here's what I know now and here's the effect it's had on me. And I made 300 copies and I gave it to every single person that had a direct relationship with me. Uh, like a, there's this very distinct memory of me being like, you know, first day of school, senior year, handing out this letter and like, did you customize it at all? No, no, no. The, okay. no, no. Same just, letter. Okay. Uh, but it was, it was, it was like, it was really revealing. Like it was, there was a lot of vulnerability and this is from like a guy who was like, you know, in high school, which is like the, the time of insecurity to the max. Oh yeah. You know, like the, it never crossed my mind that this might be used against me or I might get made fun of or like people might, it, none of those things ever crossed my mind. And I remember, like literally friends like opening up the letter and like sitting there three page letter, like reading it, like while I'm standing there. Right. And when you've got like, you're by your locker and you've got 10 people all doing that, you sort of go, Oh, I didn't think this through that much. <laughs> I, I would do something like that. too. So I totally, <laughs> I respect that. I totally respect that. And, and my friends were so wonderful. Cause my, look, my goal still isn't and wasn't then like to go, here's what I believe. And now you should believe it too. And here's the truth. It was like, here's know me. Here's who I am. Like I want to be known. And they responded in kind to go, thank you. Thank you for, letting me know you. Right. And it was this wonderful sort of moment. Um, and it sort of set me on this trajectory that, you know, I, I wanted my life to count. I wanted my life to matter. I wanted the people around me to know me. I didn't want to be, you know, the guy sort of chasing status and self, but I wanted to be the person that when I was in somebody else's life, I made their life better. And that I got to work out of, you know, generosity and kindness and humility and love. Um, and, you know, I wanted to go to college to study sneaker design. I wanted to go and design sneakers at Nike. I remember I, I met with Dwayne Edwards um, and he like trashed my portfolio, <laughs> you know, like only in the way that he can do that. <laughs> Lovingly, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's Dwayne. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, Anyways, uh, sneaker school is too expensive, you know, like I wasn't going to be able to afford it. And I, I was on my own to pay for school. And a friend goes, Hey, well, have you heard about this, you know, little school called Multnomah Bible College? And I was like, what's that? You can go to college and study that stuff. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So I go on the website and I remember like the first time I was on the website, I like press like, Oh, apply, huh? So like, I wonder what this button does. And you know, by the time you're done, so only school I ever applied to, I get in cause they have like no, you know, like requirements basically. And I spend four years going and studying theology and the Bible and Koine Greek, uh, a little bit of speech communications, uh, and have a blast at a little 400, you know, person school, um, just per, on the other 400 per class, 400 person. For, for the whole college for the whole college a hundred a class uh if that if right that. more like 200 for a freshman class and then like dwindling down from there um and for me what i like to consider it is i knew i was never going to need a piece of paper to go out and get a job and do a career i i, I was already like I was never going to fit on the rails of other people. So there was never the idea of like, I must go to a good college to get a good degree so that people will validate me. Like the idea of that was just insane to me. Right. So I was like, I'm here because I want to be 
a whole and happy person. That's what I'm here for. So I'm going to, I'm going to use this for all it is and get the most out of it. And I don't care about a piece of paper. This is going to culminate in a funny sort of anecdote, but, uh, <laughs> thanks for the foreshadowing. I'm I just that. giving it away. <laughs> and I have a blast. I am not playing sports for the first time in my life. And I realized there's all this time I can, I can do, this is what other people have. Like what? Cause I was used to like two hours of practice, you know, like extra running. Then you do your homework. Then, then you're in bed. Right. And you're doing it all over again. I was like, Oh, this is like cool. So I ended up starting an improv comedy troupe. And again, as an introvert, sort of an insane thing to do, but I was like, I have this cool idea. What's the harm in trying it? So like I, I held tryouts. Like I, I tried people out. This is like no theater background, no improv background. I don't even consider myself really a funny person, but I was like, this would be cool. Like this should exist. So why not? Um, we do a year full of shows. It's fun. We sell out every single one of them. Uh, I joined the student government team. I run for student body president my junior and senior year. I win both times. I learned what it's like to spectacularly fail at leading people and then learn from that mistake and do it really well the second time. Um, and I get a life education. I become a man truly. Um, and sort of know what I want to be out in the world. And, and of all things after that, uh, I become a photographer and a filmmaker and often to sort of entrepreneur land. Um, but I didn't graduate and he, and this is really important. And this, this will go from serious anecdote to funny anecdote. Mm. Um, senior year, I'm taking like 21 credits. I'm student body president. I'm super busy. And one of the, you know, we're first month of classes and I show up to our sociology class, two credits. And the teacher's like, all right, everybody turn in your, your reports, you know, um, you know, hopefully you enjoyed the book, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I, I'm sitting there going, I haven't done any of this. Like, I just, I missed this in the syllabus or I was thinking I can just turn it in late. It's no big deal. And so I sort of raised my hand and said, I don't have my assignment. And the teacher goes, this it's, that's, you can't pass this class if you aren't turning this in today. And I remember doing like a quick calculus in my head of going, okay, I guess that means I don't pass this class. And so I stood up, I grabbed my stuff. And I start to walk out and the teacher goes, whoa, 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 wait, you don't want to like, you don't want me to make an exception or like give you a little more time. And I turned around to her and this is like outer body experience. You know, now looking back, I go, that was not me, but it was me in that moment where I just said, if I ask for an extension now, I'll be asking for extensions all my life. So I go, I think I need to just take this F and take the consequence of it. And she was, she just didn't even respond. She just sort of looked at me with mouth agape and I ended up walking out of the class. It turns out that those two credits were the two credits that I needed for the rest of my load for the year to graduate. So I didn't graduate and I ended up showing up at graduation because a student body president, every student body president gives a gift to the graduating class. And my gift was our new mascot, the lion. So it was a lion costume. I thought, what better way to give this to the school than to dress up in the mascot costume. <laughs> and so I'm outside of the, you know, the place where the graduation's at, like dancing, because like, like something for an introvert, like when you're in like a costume, like you can beat yeah. anybody. Yeah, so it was that's like, why I love Halloween. Yeah, it was so much fun. And it was like, who's in the costume? Who's in the costume? And I, I hadn't planned on what would happen during the graduation that I couldn't possibly wear this the whole time. And I hadn't dressed in clothes that were remotely appropriate. It was like basketball shorts and like a sweaty white t-shirt. So I had to like keep the <laughs> costume on. And so I'm, I'm there lion sort of head in hand in the back of the room, sweating profusely watching all of my classmates graduate. And I thought to myself, that's not why I was here. Like, this is okay. Like, I'm so happy for them. And I, it's totally okay that I'm not up there because I know why I was here. And that was never, it was never opaque to me all these four years. And it's okay. And if, if I didn't sort of let myself slide through by getting exceptions because I was a notable person or I was student body president or cause I could negotiate my way out of a situation that if I took it on the chin and I took a consequence for something that I just, I just did a stupid thing. Like didn't do the assignment. Good. I won't do that again. 
but that's the best reason to be standing right here in this lion costume <laughs> watching all my friends graduate. <laughs> that is amazing. And I feel like you like you're going to be a super famous entrepreneur now that you have, you know, that I'm in the dropout club. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The dropout club. That's, yeah. That's there's it. uh, you know, I'm in good company, right? Yeah. Uh, I just have way more credits than most of those guys. <laughs> but actually I, I've done some, uh, like I literally I'm speaking at the school next week and I was, I was chatting with the president and he's like, Oh, what year did you graduate? I go, I go, uh, I finished uh, in 06, but I haven't graduated because you haven't graduated. I said, yeah, but I go, you're going to ask me to come back and speak, aren't you? <laughs> Still, and he's like, yeah. He's like, is there any way we could just give you those credits? I go, no, you're going to ruin my story, man. No, if it's an honorarium, I feel like it's still, like, there's still an asterisk next yeah. to it. And that asterisk is permission to tell the story. Yeah. You know? That's fair enough. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. Well, this went completely off script in a beautiful way. <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't made to feel as uncomfortable as I was hoping to, but we'll do that after we get off here. Sure. But I, uh, <laughs> I so appreciate you being on the show. And, um, and one of the things actually to the point about creating community, which I think you are doing with this book and community of parents and teachers and kids and all of that is, um, for a lot of the folks who may listen to this, they don't know that what I'm trying to do with this podcast is with the entrepreneurs that I interview, like yourself, is we get together two or three times a year at someone's house and, you know, really engage in some of these meaningful conversations and where you get to know other entrepreneurs who, where, who you may have not met before. So um, if there's ever someone out there will do a cool job of creating community or it has to be one word so you can maybe you, there's already a book on community, but, um, I do think that it's important that you are inherently creating community, what, what you're doing here and that we as this podcast are creating kind of this intimate community. So, um, all that being said, thank you so much for sharing your story. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. It was great to, great to be on and great to share it. And hopefully, hopefully it made sense. It did. Absolutely. <laughs> it was awesome. All right. Cheers. All right, time for the recap on my thoughts on my interview with Jelani Memory. But before I do that, I'd love for you to do two things. If you're listening to this on your podcast app, it'd be awesome if you could rate it. The more stars, the better. Um, but be honest, and and not or, but and if you see this on social media anywhere, please comment and um I'd love to get your feedback just because so often uh, it's like it's a black hole when I publish these uh, podcasts and I uh, don't get feedback unless I see people in person, uh, which works. So the recap, what I learned from Jelani, um, one, I love that in his Twitter bio, it is in priority order with some really great values, husband first, father second, and entrepreneur third um, as a co-founder of a kid's book about and a software company called Circle. Um, I also really, really uh, am inspired by his story, and which dates all the way back to when he was 17 years old, um, and it seemed like he should have been on top of the world um, with being the most popular kid in his high school, Wilson High School here in Portland. Uh, star athlete in basketball and soccer, grades were great, um, but he was deeply depressed and uh, realized that there's got to be something bigger than himself external out there um, because what he could control was not giving him meaning and joy, and um, he was able to find that through his spiritual journey. Um, and ultimately, the that seems to be at the core of his new company, A Kid's Book About, which is just oozing with purpose. And um, one of the big takeaways that I had is, and of course I'm projecting this on Jelani's journey, but it's that like uh, this podcast where we get to some pretty tough 
uncomfortable conversations about hard moments in um, an entrepreneur's life and really getting into their personal story. I feel like his books in a kid's book about racism, about depression, about feminism, about belonging, like not only the tough stuff, but also the aspirational things, it gets to really, really um, tough topics and meaningful ones in people's lives. And so for that, I, and plus I just uh, have a great connection with Jelani. He's a newer friend and really looking forward to getting to know him better over the upcoming months and years. So hope you all enjoyed this. And again, if you get a chance, please rate this in your podcast app and, or, and comment on social media. Thanks so much. Cheers. Cheers.